You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Well, hey, my name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you have a Bible, could you grab it and turn to Acts chapter 17? Uh, today and over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking through uh, some content that we feel like is important to start the new year with. And uh, it is, it's going to be different for us, um, but it's connected to who we want to be as a church and what God continues to lay out in front of us. Uh, because listen, as your, as your leaders, it's our hope that every Sunday we open the Bible and we read from God's word and we, we allow his word to inform our lives. We allow his word to be the authority in our lives and we conform to what God is teaching us in his word. We want to do that every Sunday. We actually encourage you to do that every day. Uh, but here's the trick. Um, we are not... Uh, following Jesus in a vacuum. We are following Jesus in a culture, uh, in a year where things are a certain way, and God knows that. God wrote his word uh, in a certain culture, in a certain time, but he is, is, a, is a God who understood all, in, in a sovereign sense all that he wanted to accomplish. So his word can be just as relevant to us today as it was to the people that originally were used to write the Bible. Uh, so there are some things that are happening and some tensions we feel as followers of Jesus in a post-Christian world that we need to be really cautious of and really uh, gifted in navigating and operating these tensions. So uh, for the next few weeks, we want to talk through the growing trends and the temptations around us as followers of Jesus, uh, particularly under the umbrella uh, known as spirituality. Spirituality. Uh, th- this is the, the broad umbrella uh, that, that's providing the tensions and the temptations we are having to uh, navigate as followers of Jesus in this cultural moment. So uh, if you were to go on the internet and Google spirituality, which I have done, uh, I did this morning just to double check, uh, 840 million results in 0.6 seconds. 840 million. In case you're wondering, uh, Josh, is that a lot? Is that a little? Uh, after that, I Googled bacon. And Bacon got 725 million results in 0.66 seconds. So Bacon had 0.06 more seconds to find more results. And it could not find more results than spirituality. Uh, I, I don't know if you feel the gravity of this moment. But spirituality has surpassed Bacon on the internet. This is alarming. This is, this is an alarming trend. This sermon doesn't have a lot of jokes. So that was one of them. If that didn't work. We're in trouble. Uh, there's a growing trend and there's a growing temptation all around us that following Jesus uh, is going, and here, here's the temptation and here's the trend, that following Jesus is just going to merge into those 840 million results of spirituality, that, that we're going to do that. Uh, and so what, what am I saying here? What am I talking about? Um, if, if you were to go into the spirituality realm, there's lots of places to look for definitions and, and what's going on. So I found one that, that, that seems to be a consensus on what is spirituality uh, and, and how does it affect uh, what we're talking about today? So here's the definition. Spirituality is connecting with the divine through our own personal experience. That's the general overarching understanding of what spirituality is. Connecting with the divine through our own personal experience. And that is juxtaposed against religion. Here's the definition for religion. Religion is connecting with the divine through someone else's experience. So that's the tension. That's the temptation. Religion, someone else's experience. 
spirituality. I can connect with the divine through my own experience. Uh, and so uh, there's, there's a professor at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem named Yuval Noah Harai, which is a very difficult name to say. He, he has written about this extensively, and here's what he says. He says, religion is a deal where spirituality is a journey. Religion gives a complete description of the world and offers a well-defined contract with predetermined goals. For instance, God exists. He told us to behave a certain way. If you obey God, you'll be admitted to heaven. If you disobey God, you'll burn in hell. That, that's just, the very clarity of this deal allows society to define common norms and values and regulate human behavior. Spiritual journeys are nothing like that. They usually take people in a mysterious way towards the unknown destination. The quest usually begins with some big questions such as, who am I? What is the meaning of life? What is good? Whereas many people just accept the ready-made answers provided by the powers that be. Spiritual seekers are not so easily satisfied. They're determined to follow the big question wherever it leads and not just to places where they know well or wish to visit. Spirituality, connecting with the divine through my own personal experience. Uh, said another way, I am my own authority when it comes to spiritual matters. I can answer the big questions of the world. I can go whichever way I want. Uh, this understanding is all around us. This is, the, this is the world we live in. You saw it in your family over the break. If you had any conversations with them about spirituality, you saw that they are the authority. Uh, you've seen this in your workplace. You will see this on the college campus. And listen, there, there should be a healthy sensitivity to this. This plays out in a lot of different ways, and it's not always bad. It's not always dangerous. Uh, as humans, created in the image of God, we should respect one another. We should be kind to one another, especially in the places where we disagree. That's not what I'm talking about today. What I'm talking about is the growing trend and temptation all around us to take following Jesus and merge it in with the 840 million other things happening on the internet. And the Bible can speak to this and the Bible can help us with this. We have got to become gifted at following Jesus in these tensions. So in Acts chapter 17, Paul helps us understand how this works out. In Acts 17, uh, the disciples and Paul, they are declaring Jesus as Lord in lots of different contexts. They are taking the gospel outside of where it was first introduced and, and different contexts uh, need different ways to apply the gospel. And in Acts chapter 17, Paul is in the city of Athens and he has an engagement with spiritual people that, that can enlighten us and help us understand uh, maybe God's design on how to walk through this. So Acts chapter 17, verse 16. I'm gonna read a story here, so, so lots of verses, but stay with me. Uh, starting in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, who's he wait? he's waiting for uh, his, his fellow um, travelers, missionaries, uh, he's deeply troubled by the idols that he saw in the city. Uh, so he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up. And others says he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things and we wanna know what it's all about. It should be explained that the Athenians as well as the foreigners in Athens seem to spend all of their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way, for as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of them on your altars had the inscription on it, to an unknown God. 
This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath and everything that satisfies and he satisfies every need. For one man, he created all the nations through the whole earth and he decided beforehand when he should, where they should rise and when they should fall and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. So let's, let's walk through the story. Paul is waiting for his friends in Athens to show up and they are late and he is, he's just waiting for them and decides, uh, I am very bummed about the idols in the city. I should go debate someone. That's Paul's default setting. I know your default setting is look at your phone or play a video game or whatever. When you're waiting for your friends, you're bummed out. Paul's waiting for his friends and he says, I would like to do something about the angst I feel because this city is very religious and I am deeply troubled by their idols. And, and he's not wrong. Athens historically is one of the oldest, most significant cities in the world. It's the epicenter of philosophical thought. It had far exceeded other cities when it came to the worship of gods and the care about religion. Uh, historians write about this extensively. Uh, there's idols that were created for mercy, for shame, for fame, for desire. The worship of Zeus was happening, the Greek god of Apollo. Athens is even named after Athena, the goddess of wisdom. And they had done such extensive work in religion and they had multiplied their idols to the utmost that some of the, the men and women of Athens decided, um, maybe we've left out a God. And in all of our work of, of worshiping and all of our work of making sure everyone's covered, maybe we've left out a God. And so just in case we've left someone out, we're going to create an idol to the unknown God. In case another God shows up and he's like, hey, where's my idol? They could be like, maybe you're that one, the unknown God over there, look, quick. And so Paul has a spiritual conversation in a synagogue with the Epicureans and, and the Stoics, and, and it goes well. And maybe this, this, you could consider this like um, the, the, the Little League version of the conversation. He starts talking about Jesus and the resurrection, and they're like scouting for new philosophical thoughts. And they're like, man, that's, a, that's some new thought. We got to bring you up to the big leagues. And Paul gets brought to the Areopagus. The, the epicenter of historical, philosophical, religious, thought leader. Uh, it, this is where it all collided. And they bring Paul to the Areopagus and they say, tell us about this. And let, let me make something clear. They are not interested in hearing Paul's doctrine because it's so great. They're interested in hearing it because it's new. He has something new to say. And Paul gets brought to the Areopagus in front of these council leaders, in front of these religious uh, professionals, if you will, who did this all the time. And we get what the Bible knows as the Areopagus sermon. He is just ready to preach. They bring him there. He just starts walking around looking at stuff. And then he just 
proclaims a sermon to them. We, we joke with our site pastors all the time because we, we send out our sermons uh, for them to be watched at our other sites that if the video ever goes down, site pastor, you are Paul of the Areopagus. You better be ready. There is no time. It is like, Paul, you're up. And Paul's like, lucky for you guys, I stay ready. You don't have to get ready if you stay ready. Paul, you got a sermon? I got lots. Here we go. What are we doing? So he walks around, he sees this. This is, this is huge. He, he walks around and he sees this altar to the unknown God. And he uses that as a springboard for teaching those in Athens about a real God who can be known. He says, what is unknown to you has been made known. And now I proclaim to you. And, and here's his sermon in, in a quick, if he were, if he were a, a preacher in our day, here's his five points. You ready? Point number one. The Lord of heaven is absolutely self-sufficient. That's, he doesn't have a joke at the beginning of his sermon. He's like, I see you guys don't know some stuff. Let me clear it up. The Lord of heaven is absolutely self-sufficient. Verse 24 and 25. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives all men life and breath and everything in him, we live and move and breathe and have our being. He is completely self-sufficient. Do I have your attention, philosophers? Like, yeah, okay, that's a, that's a big claim. Claim number two, this self-sufficient God created all of the various nations from one man and he determines how long a nation survives and how far its boundaries are extended. Not only is he all sufficient, he is all powerful. He created every nation and he told the nations how far they can go and how long they can live. Verse 26, he made from every nation one man to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of all their habitation. God knows where you're gonna live. He is so sovereign, he knows who your neighbor is. I heard one guy say, he knows who you're gonna sit next to in English class. He has designed the world in such a way that he has spoken into this, even to the terms of boundaries. He's self-sufficient, he's made the world. Number three, God's purpose in ruling the nations like this is to put people on a search for him. He's, he's sufficient, he's created the boundaries of the world. Why? Verse 27, that those in the world would seek him and that they would seek him in order to find him. So he rules the nation so that he would put people on a search for him. Are you searching for him, philosophers? College campus, are you searching for him? My neighbors, are you searching for him? God is doing something that would actually be designed so that you would search for him. And then the next point is profound and very different than every other deity they, they were dealing in. This God you are searching for is not a distant deity. He is near to those who seek him. He says, you're seeking him and what you don't even understand is he is not far off. He is not a distant God. He is not a dead God. He is not far off. He is near to you. He is sovereign over everything. He's actually designed this whole world in such a way that this Areopagus sermon could be preached to you because he is pursuing you even right now. He's not far and he's seeking those who seek him. And then the, the, just the profound powerful ending point of his sermon is this. The time of ignorance is over. The time of ignorance is over. And he says this, in the past, God had looked, overlooked ignorance. What is he saying? God has been incredibly patient 
with all kinds of people worshiping all kinds of gods. And he has pursued them and he's wanted to use the people of Israel to show the world who the one true glorious creator God is. He's been on a search for people, but his, he's crescendoed his search in sending his son Jesus into the world. And his son Jesus has lived a perfect life died in our place and been risen from the dead. And that is the most significant event in human history. So now the time of ignorance is over. Jesus was crucified, massive claim, raised from the dead, more massive claim, appointed to be the ruler and judge over all the world, crazy claim. And then he says, Jesus is now the necessary object of saving faith for you and for the whole world. Here's Paul's message. Time is up. Repent, believe in Jesus Christ, and be saved from the judgment of God. Time is up. The unknown God is actually the one true God, and he has sent his son. Repent of your sins, turn to him. In the most hyper-spiritual context of the day, Paul connected with the people. He walked around, he saw where they were, and through a logical progression, he led them from where they were to who God is. And profoundly and beautifully, in a, in a hyper-pluralistic environment, Paul did not allow Jesus to be lumped in with everything else. He didn't allow it. He entered into the space while remaining set apart. He told them about God while keeping God set apart. He even quotes a poet from their day. He's like quoting the Beatles or Coldplay or Bieber, whoever you listen to. Like he's like quoting them and they're like, oh wow. Like he is contextualizing the gospel in a profound way. And he takes their spirituality and he guides them to the ultimate truth of the gospel. And some of them believe. Some of them laugh. Some of them want to hear more. And some of them believe. And then Acts chapter 7, 16 ends. And the story goes on. And he goes to Corinth. It's just like that. Acts chapter 17, story of Athens. Acts chapter 18, him and his friends go to Corinth. And what's, what's fascinating about this story is he shares the gospel in a way that probably haunted these people. I'd like to think for weeks later, for days later, they, they, the men and women show up to the Areopagus and they go walking around doing their normal thing and they see this unknown God idol. And they're reminded of the overwhelming profound claims that this unknown God is the Lord of heaven and he's absolutely self-sufficient. And they start to be reminded of the story of Jesus and what he's accomplished for them. And they just hear in their head, the time of ignorance is over. The time of ignorance is over. Repent and believe. And Jesus is set apart, even though he's in the middle of all these other gods. In the middle of all this spirituality, Jesus is set apart. So what Paul was able to do in this story is what you and I have got to become experts in. Paul is able to interpret the spirituality of his day. He's able to interpret, to go into it and to interpret it and to use it as a springboard so that the gospel could be inserted into a conversation, the gospel could be made known. And he knew that the self-evident realities of his cultural moment could be leveraged for the sake of the gospel. The self-evident realities of the spiritual world he lived in could be leveraged for the gospel. Paul loved these people. And I know you may think, man, Paul showed up and gave a speech. Paul, Paul told them some hard stuff, but listen, he loved them. And he didn't let their personal experience be the authority about who God is and what he's accomplished in Jesus. Paul lovingly and plainly told them, someone has been raised from the dead and he is the truth above every truth. So whatever spiritual journey you're on, I respect that. Whatever led you to the Areopagus, that's great. But you're here now 
and you've heard this moment and God is seeking after you and you can find him. He's made a way for you and the time of ignorance is now over. We are in the time of God's mercy and the time of God's forgiveness and this is good news. And he again was able to interpret the spirituality of his day and to springboard from that moment into the gospel. So you go, why are we talking about this? Here's my question for us as the church. What are the self-evident spiritual realities of our cultural moments? What are the self-evident spiritual realities of our cultural moments? And how do we worship God, plant churches, and make disciples in the midst of the self-evident spiritual realities of our moments? I know that is a lot of words. One more time. What are the self-evident, the things that that are just everywhere, everybody can see them, we're not debating about it. What are the self-evident realities of our cultural moments? And how do we worship God, make disciples, and plant churches in our modern day Athens? How do we do it? What are they? And so I've prayed about this, our staff talks about this, uh, and I've written down a few of the things that I think are are the self-evident spiritual realities of our cultural moment that we have got to become experts in navigating when it comes to following Jesus in our day. And so here we go. Self-evident spiritual realities of our cultural moment. Number one, the teachings of Jesus are increasingly out of sync with the moral vision of our world. The teachings of Jesus are becoming more and more increasingly out of sync with the moral vision of our world. So listen, following the teachings of Jesus have always been hard. And, and as American Christians, we are not under persecutions like our brothers and sisters overseas. I'm not even gonna pretend that's the same. But there are some spaces in our world where the traditional biblical understanding of moral issues are no longer just your opinion, but in certain places, not everywhere, they're being seen as hate speech, as dangerous and harmful. This again, this isn't ubiquitous, this isn't all over, but this is becoming more common. And it's not just the philosophical space that's having this increasing distance between Jesus and the moral vision. Uh, This is even infiltrating the quote unquote church. Where, Where the picture of Jesus's teaching are becoming out of sync with the moral vision of the quote unquote church. That, that's, that's the self-evident spiritual reality of our day. And yet we've been called to be like Paul in Acts chapter 16, be like Jesus in his culture and, and figure out how do we walk in this? How, how do we deal in this? But you feel that tension. If you're paying attention, you feel that tension. And, and what you're being offered oftentimes is, is, is one of two things that you don't even wanna walk in. And so a couple years, uh, sorry, a couple months ago, we did the sermon series called Third Way, where we're like, if you're really following Jesus, you're making conservative people really mad and you're making liberal people really mad. And that's probably where we need to live in this tension. And so you feel that in this first point. The second spiritual reality that's self-evident in our day. It, it is increasingly difficult for many to biblically define who is and who is not a Christian. It is increasingly difficult for many of us to biblically define who and who is not a Christian. If you are paying attention, before our very eyes, Christianity is morphing into an inclusive religion. Every day we watch as another tenant of the Christian faith falls from the list of prerequisites of what it means to become a follower of Jesus. Today, this is out there in the world. You can, you can deny the virgin birth. Jesus was not born of a virgin. 
You can deny his substitutionary death. You could say that God uh, was not a part of that. You could deny the resurrection. And you could still get overwhelming assurance from many people that you are going to go to heaven no problem. Denominations have split over theological things about salvation. Denominations have split over things regarding moral uh, issues. Denominations have split over uh, what, what is marriage and what is not marriage and who can be a pastor and who cannot be a pastor. This is happening. And it all comes down to what does it mean to be a Christian? What does the Bible teach about followers of Jesus becoming from the dead state that they were born into in sin, which even that's being debated, into a new life in Christ under the authority of the scripture, following the lordship of Jesus by the internal indwelling of the power of the Holy Spirit? What does that even mean anymore? How in the world are we struggling to biblically define who is and who is not a Christian? Why are we struggling with that? Because of the pressure of the self-evident spiritual realities of our day. That's why we're struggling with that. The tension and the pressure of our day is leading for us to many of us who can't even define who is and who is not a Christian. This is the world we live in. Number three, self-evident spiritual realities of our cultural moment. Number three, the deconversion narrative is growing higher in numbers and higher in profile. The deconversion narrative. What is a deconversion narrative, you might ask? Uh, the, the spirituality world I was talking about with the 840 million results um, is also evangelizing Christians to leave the Christian faith and join them. So there is a, there is a conversion out of your conversion. Uh, this is growing in numbers and it's growing in profile. So the purpose of a deconversion story is to convince a believer that their outdated, naive beliefs are no longer worthy of their assent. That your beliefs are outdated, your beliefs are naive, and frankly, that's just not the world it is anymore. So you need to deconvert out of that. And, and people are sharing their testimonies of this. This has happened in our, uh, we've seen this again, if you're paying attention, uh, high profile deconversion stories, Bert Ehrman, uh, Bart Ehrman, sorry, Rob Bell, Peter Inns, Jen Hatmaker, Joshua Harris, people who were uh, followers of Jesus who have deconverted. There's even been a script created on how you can deconvert from Christianity. This has been written about and studied on everybody having kind of the same pathway on how you can deconvert. If you would like to deconvert from Christianity, I'm gonna tell you how. You ready? You're, okay, yeah, okay. You ready? Anybody? No, okay, cool. Here, we're doing it anyways. We're in it. And you seem bored, so here we go. Uh, number one, how to deconvert from Christianity. Recount the negatives of your fundamentalist past. The church was oppressive to you. Those fundamentalists made you follow rigid rules. You recount that stuff. Second, that's number one. Number two, position yourself as the offended party who bravely fought the establishment. Position yourself as a person who was offended and you, you, you now bravely fight the establishment who fundamentally held you down. Then portray your opponents as overly dogmatic while you're just a seeker trying to figure out the truth. These dogmatic fundamentalists have been holding me down. I'm now fighting the establishment and I'm just a seeker and those are the ones that are holding to their guns. And the, this is the key. This is the key. If you really do this, here's the key. You, you guys write this down. This is the key to deconvert. Ready? Insist that your new theology is driven by the Bible, not just a rejection of the Bible. That is the key to it all. 
that you have a new interpretation of the scripture. These fundamentalist people held you down. You're brave and you're fighting the establishment and you're just seeking. And by the way, you're seeking using the Bible. That is so key. Do not reject the Bible or you can't get out of this. You've got to use the Bible. And then lastly, attack the character of your old group and uplift the character of your new group. That is the new evangelism of our day. That is the self-evident spiritual reality that we are walking in. People are being deconverted and this is a form of evangelism. There is now a script on how to help people move away from that fundamentalist, oppressive, broken religion into a new world of spirituality. It's happening more and more. And I'd submit to you, people, if you are operating with the view of Jesus that is fundamentalist and rigid and broken and lifeless, that is not the gospel. Walk away from that into the true understanding of the Lordship of Jesus. That is healthy. But what is happening is more and more deconversion stories. This is our modern day Athens, where Christians are being poached out of the church into a new world, which leads to this. Progressive spirituality is what more and more people will see as the future of the church. Progressive spirituality. And listen, I, I, went, I went to a Catholic church a little bit until I was like 12. I went enough to go through catechism. And then once you get through catechism, my grandma quit pressuring me. So we stopped. Uh, when I was 13, I went to the Southern Baptist Church. And I'm still in it. If you didn't know that, I now pastor a Southern Baptist Church. Welcome to the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, that, we love it. We're in. It's great. And I've seen my friends, Catholic and Baptist, have this sense of fundamentalism and frustration and the pendulum swings the other way. Some of them are even churchly. I've seen my friends lead churches that swing the other way to the progressive vision of the church, progressive spirituality. And the difficulty is it doesn't take long before the progressive vision of spirituality has no room for the church. And what I've experienced and likely you have too is that progressive spirituality doesn't just kill your faith, it also kills your church. It kills discipleship to Jesus because the first thing you have to do is question the authority of the writings of the New Testament. You've got to question the authority of Jesus and you've got to leverage the pieces that you like so that you can attack the people that you don't like. But generally, you can't allow the whole counsel of God to reign supreme authoritatively over your life. And we're talking about smart, well-written and spoken, smart people who say, I can now follow Jesus but not live under the authority of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I can live under, I can, I can follow Jesus, but not look at church history. And I can follow Jesus uh, with my own authority of who Jesus is. Uh, Peter Enns, the guy I was talking about a minute ago, he has a PhD from Harvard. This is not a not smart guy. These are well-smoking smart people. And here's, here, here's what he says. He, he actually says that this progressive spirituality is the future of the church because it's, it's, it's what has to be. And here's a quote for him. He says, the act of reimagining God in ways that reflect our time and our place is self-evident, unavoidable, and necessary. The act of reimagining God in ways that reflect our time and place is self-evident, unavoidable, and necessary. Is this not Athens? Is this not the unknown God? Let's make him in our image. Let's reimagine God because our time is the authority. Our place is the authority. We are the self-evident authorities. And the apostle Paul comes in and says, there is a Lord of heaven who is all self-sufficient and who lives outside of time and space and needs nothing from you. Would you like me to tell you about him? But our generation says, no, no, we should reimagine God. And this spirituality is rampant. The spirituality is evangelizing people. 
And this is self-evidence. And you might hear all that and go, man, that sounds discouraging. And if, you, if you're not careful, you could be discouraged. But I submit to you, God, through the power of the gospel and the work of the spirit has perfectly positioned the church to make an impact like maybe our world hasn't seen in a long time in the middle of this narrative. So the last thing that is spiritually self-evident is that disciples of Jesus have a massive opportunity to impact the world through biblical rootedness and spiritual power. Like, a, like never before, we are positioned through technology, through spirituality, through connectedness. Right now, we could show the world like Paul showed the people in Athens. We, we, can, we can contextualize. We can understand the spirituality. We can understand that they're really seeking transcendence. I know someone who has provided transcendence. They're really seeking identity. And the Christians can come along and say, I know who you are. I know that your spiritual journey is asked the question of who am I? I know that answer. I have met the one who informs that. Well, I have this fundamentalist rigid background. I could tell you about the freedom that Jesus offers under the healthy view of the scripture being the authority in my life. But the church has got to figure this out. We as Resonate, we've got to figure this out. How do we walk as a church with deep biblical roots? Like we know how to think. We know how to read. We know how to interpret. We know how to sit in stuff and, and process it from different angles. We are not shallow. We are not sound bites. We are not uh, nationalistic. We, we understand how to process this and we know what the scriptures say about stuff. We're deeply rooted, foundationally rooted in the word of God and secondarily or, or just primarily in, in, in another way, we operate in the world with spiritual power. When people get around us, they see transcendence. They see identity. They see resurrection power. They see inside of us something that looks otherworldly, something that looks like what they are searching for. But sadly in the churches, there's people that have spiritual power. And the more you talk to them, the more you realize they have no, they have no biblical roots. And there's people that have biblical roots and they operate with rigidness and fundamentalism and no sense of spiritual power and resonate. We have got to be a people who can contextualize the gospel to any kind of context we find ourselves in. We can walk around our world and we can see the idols and understand with a sense of empathy that these people are searching for something that, that was put inside of them by God himself, that they would be seeking. And we have empathy for that. And we have, we have prayer for that. And we understand that. And we can kindly, generously, compassionately show them that God is seeking them and we know the answers that they are seeking and they could see in us a vision for their future. That we have to be in a post-Christian world where deconversion stories and progressive spirituality is everywhere. We have got to represent both individually and corporately the kingdom of God being seen on this earth as it is in heaven. That people can look at our lives and want it and what's going to happen is crazy stuff. Like the basic way of following Jesus is going to look revolutionary in our world. That we would serve others. Basic Jesus following. Revolutionary in our world. That we as people of faith would operate with solitude and community. We'd know how to think and we'd know how to live in community. That we'd operate with spiritual disciplines. We would, we'd know how to feast and throw parties and be awesome. And we'd also know how to fast and pray and repent and put on a sense of mourning for the loss uh, of the, the story of our world. We would, we would know how to submit to one another. And that would just look radical in our world. That we'd be a group of people that do that well. And we'd be a group of people that restrict our freedoms 
when the great thing that is being worshiped in our culture is freedom. Don't oppress me. I get to do whatever I want. And if you stop me, you're oppressing me. The God of freedom has taken captive a generation. And we say, we know how to live in real freedom. We know how to restrict our freedoms for the glory of God. We have a massive opportunity through biblical rootedness, spiritual power to show our modern day Athens, our spiritual cafeteria, that there is a one true God and he has made himself known in Jesus and he has wrecked our lives and he has overwhelmed us with his compassion and his, his mercy towards us. And if we're gonna be this kind of church, then we have got to be free from the temptation we feel to lump Jesus in with everything else. And listen, I, I know enough to know that many of you, even in this, even in this sermon, have, have the temptation and the tendency to say, can't we just get, can we just move on from this and like let Jesus be lumped in with everyone else? We could if we wanted to dishonor Jesus, not even allowing himself to be lumped in with all this. He's the one that says he's the way, the truth, and life. He's the one that says nobody gets to the Father except through him. He's the one that, that, that raised from the dead and called us to have allegiance to him. We have got to be free from the temptation to lump Jesus in with everything else. And we have got to become experts at having spiritual conversations with the spiritual world that point directly to Jesus from wherever they find themselves. We've got to be free from the temptations in our own life. We gotta reclaim our allegiance to Jesus, reclaim our allegiance to his kingdom, reclaim our allegiance to his word, reclaim our allegiance to being a, a group of people set apart even though we're in this world. And then we've gotta become experts at having spiritual conversations that point people to Jesus from wherever they are. And we've gotta do that empathetically and compassionately and prayerfully. This is the cultural moment we find ourselves in. And we don't wanna be the church that just closes our eyes and hopes it doesn't happen to us. We want to be the church that says we, we see the future as much as anybody else. And we're going to ask God to use us in a mighty way in our generation to make sure the gospel is seen in a midst of religious plurality, in a midst of spirituality everywhere. We're going to make sure that the gospel is seen front and center because we were born into sin and we've been rescued out of it. And we have a story that's the most compelling story in the whole world. We have a community that's the most com compelling community in the whole world. We have a mission that's the most compelling mission in the whole world. We have an identity and a purpose that's the most compelling identity and purpose in the whole world. And we've got to become experts at sharing this. And it's going to take boldness. And it's going to take prayer. And it's going to take a lot of thinking. But over the next few weeks, we want to talk through what it's going to look like for us to operate in a world where everything's spiritual and spirituality is everywhere. How can we be the kind of people that God's asked us to be, to enter into our Athens and share with our world that the unknown God can be known and he has been known in Jesus Christ and that is available to anyone who seek him. So I wanna pray for us and ask God to make us that kind of church. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have as a church to take your good news and not just sit on it, not just internalize it, not just be quiet in the middle of a culture that's going all over the place. God, we, we, we are thankful that you've given us an opportunity to share your good news. And God, we come before you as a church willing to repent of the places where we have lumped you in with everything else. 
And God, we pray that this year you, you would make us eager to be biblically rooted. You would make us eager to be founded in your word. And God, you'd make us eager to experience life with spiritual power. And God, I pray as a community, as a family on mission, we would be those kind of people. We'd push each other to be those kind of people. And God, we pray for our world. We pray for our Athens. We pray for the college campus that you would help us to be a light in the darkness. And you would help us to be wise and know when to speak up and you'd help us to be wise and know when to pray and be quiet. But God, I pray that the one thing that, that, that is certain across all of us is that nobody can be on the sidelines when it comes to this. God, we all have to be in the game. We all have got to participate in engaging our culture. But God, give us maturity and give us wisdom as we do it. So Father, in this moment, I pray that you would help us see the places where we've lumped you in with everything else. And God, now as we move into a time of worship, I, I pray that we would be overwhelmed again by the fact that you have made known to us the truth. That you have made Jesus known to us. And I pray that would stir in us a desire to worship you, a desire to know you, and a desire to share you with others. So God, turn our hearts towards the wonder of the gospel. Turn our hearts towards the wonder of knowing you and allow us to sing to you. Allow us to pray to you now with a sense of gratefulness. So God, we worship you now. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.